ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Earlier what used to happen is that when the biologists would go and you know count the vultures, they would not count vultures less than five. So if they saw four vultures together, they would not even count them because they were so abundantly present. That was the situation in 1996. They were common and in 2000 they became critically endangered. the decline of the species is at a rate faster than the rate of the decline of the dodo a faster decline than the dodo what the duck and jones with you on what the duck the program where we investigate things in nature that make you do a double take there were tens of millions of vultures in south asia in the mid 1980s they'd weigh down the trees there were so many of them so this abundance that unless you saw it you can't fully appreciate today but there were tens of millions of vultures in south asia in 1990s the vulture population was crashed by almost 99.9% and they were totally disappeared from the entire country an almost 100% drop in population that is a WTD moment. So today we're dressing up as if we're a true crime podcast to figure out what killed South Asia's vultures. Now, not a lot of people would call vultures their favorite bird, but someone who would is Dr. Andrew Santangeli. Vultures are grouped together by their feeding habits. Andrea is a conservation scientist at the Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies in Spain. The pretty much exclusively eat dead animals, carcasses, whatever organic material they can find in the environment, including human waste. They're literally like garbos, absolute heroes. They're so-called the, the nature's cleanup crew. So in some places they have been really found to provide the key ecosystem service by hiding the composition of waste. And they look good when they're doing it too. Strong shoulders, longish sort of legs and a fashionably bald haircut. Uh, no, no, not, not all have really, really bald heads. Those species that have bald heads, mostly they feed on carcasses by introducing the head inside the carcass. So it's a, it's a kind of, if you want, adaptation to scavenge uh, inside the carcass. Not just bald for looks. Bald because it helps your head get inside a dead animal and out again without getting stuck or too dirty. But actually, some vultures are relatively hirsute. Oh, because vultures are unreal. Dr Campbell Mern once found a book on falconry in a second-hand store and it set off what has become a lifelong passion and career. Not only are they incredibly graceful on the wing, they're just the most amazing flyers. He's currently head of conservation at the Hawk Conservancy Trust, which is involved in several vulture conservation programs. South Asia, as a subcontinental region, was filled with big vultures. In fact, in the mid-1980s, vultures occurred in enormous numbers and they were in the middle of towns and cities. Vultures were just part of everyday life. There are pictures vultures in and around Delhi in 1980s where the vultures are sitting on a building and not even a sparrow can sit over there. And I'm not joking. Percy Avari is a vet by profession who studied for a master's in poultry science but wrote his thesis on the grim reaper chicken i.e. vultures in india alone 
there are nine species of vulture. Out of these six species are resident and three species are migratory. We are right now working on uh, bringing back the four species which are endangered. That's Kishorite, the Honorary Secretary of the Bombay Natural History Society in India. He actually trained as an engineer and had a successful career, which he abandoned to become a conservationist. And what he's saying roughly matches what's happening worldwide. Currently, 69% of vultures and condors are listed as threatened or near-threatened by the IUCN. After 1990s, we drastically saw a decline in vulture population and they were totally disappeared within next couple of years. So this was not something that was just happening in the cities, but this was something that was even happening in the nature reserves. I think in 1999, Dr. Vihu Prakash came up with a paper in the Journal of PNHS, which said that out of 736 pairs of vultures nesting in Keoladeo National Park, there were none which were left. And so that was a very alarming state of affairs. When vultures disappeared, we saw that there are carcasses everywhere, smelling, rotting, and then spreading diseases, uh, attracting dogs. And it was not only the bodies of dead animals that vultures were feeding on. As far as anyone has recorded, or for as long as anyone has recorded, Zoroastrians have disposed of their dead by leaving bodies exposed to vultures. Shirali Munshi is a law professor at Georgetown, a daughter of Zoroastrians, Parsis, who describes herself as probably a bit of a lapsed Parsi. And that, like the vultures they've relied on, the thing about Parsis is that they're kind of disappearing breed. The religion started something like 3,500 years ago, and it's based on the teachings of a prophet called Zarathustra. Uh, so if we were to summarize the whole thing, the principle is... Uh, that means good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Percy, the veterinarian and poultry scientist, is also Parsi. You can say it talks about being comfortable and being one with nature as well. It's considered a monotheistic religion, but one that predates Judeo-Christian tradition. And the Parsis themselves are the descendants of a group of Zoroastrians who emigrated from Iran and uh, settled in India some thousands of years ago now. And it's a pretty small community. It's a community that's been based in Bombay, the Parsis themselves. Of course, like Bombay is now a massive city, right? Some 30 million people. It's a humongous city. So they have this this land and that's where they have a couple of towers of silence and which you know which is where most Parsis leave Bombay from, right? The 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 towers of silence there. When Shirali says leave Bombay from, she means, you know, leave this realm after you've died. Yeah, and you know what? It's been given this moniker, Towers of Silence, but this is plainly like an English <laughs> moniker. And I think, you know, colours the practice, obviously, a little bit. It has then like a kind of Victorian Gothic sound about it. And to my eye, looking at photos of this area on the internet, the place looks like a sort of heaven in the city. It's heavily treed, heavily. There's this gorgeous green canopy and it looks as if there are paths for walking through the gardens. Shirali wrote at length about this place in 2009 in a piece she called Death Wish. So it's sort of like Central Park in New York. It's this kind of like centre of the city, right? The Parsis have had this land 
in what's called Malabar Hill, which is also a very kind of elegant part of the city. It is uh, called as the Lung of Mumbai, that place Malabar Hill, where the Dakmas are available. Because uh, the idea is that there will be a certain amount of smell and all of that. So there is a particular area beyond which even the family members are not allowed to go. So the towers are in a fenced area where easy access is not available for human beings especially. Yeah, so nature is maintained over there. Uh, you have a lot of kites and uh, I'm sure there would be some grey hornbills and definitely barbets and stuff. If we have peafowl over there, I'm sure there are a lot of snakes as well. I remember someone mentioning that around 150 years ago, there were even leopards in the towers. So, so... Well, uh, there's no danger of leopards anymore. More the dangers of development. There were a lot of uh, large towers that were built and people could actually see the inside of the dogma from their windows. And as the city has grown up around it, people who are paying loads of money to live in these, you know, skyscrapers have a sight of what happens in the in the Towers of Silence, as they're called. So what is that vision that was never meant to be seen? So the idea with relation to the last rite is that the corpse is subjected to something which is called as Dokhma Nashini. So Dokhma Nashini means exposing the corpse to sunlight. From what I understand, you know, after a family sort of performs a ceremony, a kind of cleansing ceremony, the bodies are brought into the dakma and just sort of left on the top of the sort of concentric stone. So there are these towers which have been created and uh, there are various platforms uh, in sort of concentric circles right from the edge of the circle towards the radius. So any Zoroastrian that passes, the corpse after prayers uh, is uh, taken over there and placed uh, to expose it to the sunlight. Um, after the bodies are left, of course, the families continue a, a set of rites for four days, something like that, as they sort of wait for the body to leave. The body to leave. This is where the vultures should come in. Over you know, short period of time, I think, was the traditional expectation. After a short period of time, vultures would basically pick clean the bodies. But evidently, that's no longer what's happening since there are not enough vultures to sort of do, do the work of picking clean the bodies. Just to give you an idea about it, Dr. Salim Ali, uh, in his books, he has written that a group of vultures of around 60 to 70 vultures can strip off a cow carcass which weighs around 400 to 500 kilos to mere bones in 15 minutes. So that is the kind of uh, quick service that the vultures would provide. So you can think about a human corpse which would weigh around, say, anything between 60 to 100 kilos. So it would be very quick disposal. There are photos of the Dakmas in the late 1800s where the walls seem unassailably high and around the edge of the circle sits a solid line of vultures. But by the 1990s, the vultures of India were disappearing and the people who had those apartments that overlooked the Dakmas started to complain. 
The bodies were not disappearing. They were lying there, rotting on the exposed internal surfaces of the buildings. Yes, so there was uh, quite a lot of, uh, you can say, uh, unrest <laughs> to a certain extent about what was happening. And to counter that, what has been created since the ideology is that there should be uh, sunlight to which the corpses are exposed to. So they have built in solar concentrators, which help in concentrating the sunlight and, you know, try to accelerate the uh, process of decomposition of the body. Has it been effective. Like, I mean, I struggle to imagine that anything will be as effective as a group of 60 vultures, right? Like... Yeah. So, again, because it is a sacred area and not a lot of people are uh, allowed to go there, so it is very difficult to try and find out about whether these uh, concentrators are really doing their job. But uh, one of the things that uh, is uh, slightly... So there is a breakdown over there is that in the monsoon season, especially in places like Mumbai where there is heavy rainfall and, you know, it's cloudy for quite a long period of time, maybe for days together. So it would be difficult for these concentrators to work, especially at those times. So I'm a bird nerd and I initially thought that this would all be about being carried into the sky by the birds, but it's not. For the Parsis, it's about the light. It's just that the vultures had been absolutely critical personal assistance to the sun. To put it in perspective... Dr Campbell Mern. It was a little bit like counting gulls by the seashore or counting corvids out in the bush. There were so many birds that the idea of counting them within thinking, gosh, they might disappear one day, is, was just so foreign to people. But that's what Vibu did. Vibhu Prakash was from the Bombay Natural History Society and in the early 1990s he did a series of surveys that established a baseline for all raptor populations in India. And he was the first to publish that there was a major issue in the vulture populations. Even in national parks, entire breeding populations disappeared. There were lots of theories about why the vultures were disappearing. A lot of them were red herrings and a lot of people were suggesting all sorts of outlandish ideas like they were being hit by trains or the armed forces were getting rid of them. All that, A lot of silly ideas really. But the one that was probably gaining the most traction and which made most sense from the biological information we had at the time was that there was a disease that had started and was, was impacting these species specifically. The spatial and temporal spread of mortality seemed to match that of, an, of, a, of a disease. There were reports of vultures standing, heads dangling below their bodies, clearly in distress and dying. But it wasn't a disease like bird flu or something that was taking them down. What was being noticed is that the vultures were dying because of gout. Gout? So gout is nothing but the deposition of the uric acid crystals on the visceral organs or in the joints. People were still testing for other things. It was a discovery by a veterinary pathologist, a man called Lindsay Oakes. Dr. Lindsay Oakes, he was working with the Peregrine Fund at that time. And from Washington State University. And, and he was working in collaboration with the WWF Pakistan. He looked at 
what was the main food source for these vultures which was the domestic cattle he tried to understand what were the drugs which were used on a normal basis for the treatment of these animals and one of the drugs that stood out diclofenac diclofenac was the cause of renal failure in these vultures diclofenac is an anti-inflammatory drug you might have the human version in your cupboard it's an active ingredient in things like voltaren but it wasn't the vultures dropping into the chemist for something to ease their aches and pains they were ingesting it via food these veterinary drugs that were given to cattle in the late stages of their life and a lot of these cattle died with this drug diclofenac in their system because it, it's an analgesic, it's an anti-inflammatory drug and it eases an animal's discomfort and pain. So an animal that's towards the end of its life is probably going to be given quite a big dose of diclofenac. And the drops in vulture population numbers also coincided with this drug coming off patent. So it became cheaper and more widely available. And it was an incredibly effective drug in treating cattle, so it was taken up with gusto. And meanwhile, the vulture population was just in freefall. Declines of around about 40% per year. That's the fastest known recorded decline of any large vertebrate anywhere, anytime, anybody's ever known about. And I think it was probably one of the greatest contributions to conservation in the last 100 years by recognising this. 99% of the vulture population had died before the drug was banned in 2006. It was banned? Yes, it was banned in India, Pakistan and Nepal. And when you think that the really seminal work on what was happening was only published three years before that, it's an incredibly quick period of time to get legislative change through. The world's biggest cattle herd, let's not forget, in India... Yeah, to get that done in such a short period of time was nothing short of astounding and it was it was an amazing advance and, and it really you know, gave a jolt to everybody thinking, you know, we can do this. And have the numbers increased in the wild? Kishore Rite is from the Bombay Natural History Society. Yeah, now population, uh, as far as these uh, four species are concerned... That's white-rumped, long-billed, slender-billed and red-headed vultures. The population is coming back. We are continuously monitoring the population and also uh, doing nationwide surveys. So after survey, we have the results and it shows that there is no further decline. The population is almost stable. And in some of the pockets, rather population is increasing. But the breeding biology of vultures is slow. And there are so many dangers in the environment still that further plans had to be made. And that included expensive undertakings like captive breeding. Right now also we have uh, around eight to nine centres in India which are having captive vulture populations. Most of them are kept in colony aviaries. And these large colony aviaries work because these vulture species are gregarious. They're not very territorial, so within reason they're quite happy being enclosed together. So there has been successful uh, breeding in the captive population for sure and very recently we had the SAVE meeting at Nepal. SAVE is a consortium of groups that are all working to save Asian vultures from extinction. So they also had a 
breeding center and uh, they have created what we call as a vulture safe zone this is where a big circle is drawn a radius of 100 kilometers and within that space there is a concerted effort to rid the system of vulture dangerous drugs and they have released all their vultures into the wild. In Nepal this is. And uh, some of the vultures have been satellite tagged. So we have found that from Nepal. One bird I think has come as far as Maharashtra. That's the state in which Mumbai is situated. One bird has gone all the way to Pakistan. And uh, there are birds that regularly come to India and go back to Nepal. It's fantastic about the vulture safe zones, but it also (laughs) means that They're so tiny compared to how far these birds can fly. Yes. Study in uh, Africa by Dr. David Houston has suggested that the birds, while they are breeding and they have a young one in the nest, they have been known to travel 160 kilometer radius distance in one single day to come and feed the young one. Geez, really, to save these vultures, we need to basically make the whole world a vulture safe zone. When was the last time that you saw a wild vulture? On the 11th of March, 2023 in Nepal. Okay, I love that he knows the exact date. So the birds were released and there were wild birds also around. And there the, some of these birds that have been captive bred and released, they are nesting and we saw a successful nest also. A couple of nests, actually, uh, close to the release site, yeah. These successes in Nepal are exciting, but it's always going to be a slow, slow process. These are birds that breed slowly, they mature slowly, and the laws don't necessarily mean that the drug, or others like it, are not still in circulation in vulture country. But it's not as if the vultures are completely without defences. I read that vultures do a defensive vomit. Uh, Yes, Uh, it happens, yes. (laughs) Have you been on the receiving end of a defensive vomit? A few times, yes. Uh, So, (laughs) luckily, not so often. (laughs) There's even a story from Kentucky in the USA where one day, out of a blue sky, it literally rained meat all over a town and there was no actual rain at Olympia Springs in 1876 on the 3rd of March, but a Mrs. Couch reported meat making a slapping sound as it hit the ground. This is an an adaptation to escape predators. This is vulture expert Andrea Santangeli. When they congregate at carcasses, and maybe they feed once a week or once every few days, so when they find the carcass, they need to stuff themselves with a lot of food, but really like kilos of meat. And what happens is that this adds a lot of weight, so they, they become very slow. So if they suddenly, when they are at the carcass feeding, there is a carnivore or another predator approaching and threatening them, they regurgitate. Yeah, they throw that rotting meat up. To, to become lighter again and uh, um, much faster escape. So it's a, it's a strategy. Have you been vomited on by a vulture? Loads, yeah, yeah, loads. Heavens above, yeah. No. So not only does it really stink, it, it's like, it's acidic. So it lands on you and it stinks and it burns. It's like something out of a Star Wars movie gone wrong. No, no, it's horrible. Not so much that it's burnt holes in my shirt, but it does sting after a while if you get enough on it. Yeah. We're going to leave your listeners with that image of being vomited on by a vulture. Is that really, <laughs> is that your last salvo? Really? Yes. 
Or actually, if you don't want to leave with that taste in your mouth, then you should go direct over to the ABC Listen app or a podcast app of your choice. Over there, we're putting an extra special little bit of vulture goodness that is only available in the feed. So if you want to know what Johnny Cash's Burning Ring of Fire had to do with the near extinction of vultures in the USA, go now. What the Duck is an ABC podcast produced by me, Anne Jones, and Patria Ladgrove. We do it all on Wadawurrung and Ghana land. Actually, I'm not going to end it on vomit or on Johnny Cash's burning ring. I'm going to end it like I hope to end my carnal existence. One final thing. So, um, it's a personal question. When you have you made a plan for when inevitably we all die? What's going to happen to your body? Well, I hope I just consumed by vultures. I would love to be consumed by vultures. <laughs> you probably have the opportunity to potentially be consumed by vultures, though, so that's a good plan. Yeah. So let's see. <laughs>